0: Everybody, alright, so we are, where are we I, I, I am going non-controversial this evening, that's at least that's my attempt, but uh, I've currently failed on two previous attempts to go non-controversial and have allowed myself to have recordings that only, only a handful of people are privy to listen to for those who weren't in the last studio audience. So we are, uh, this evening we're going to be talking about um, sex schisms and uh, the various divisions that have existed over the Jewish community, which... Um, continue till this very day, and consistently um, arise from generation to generation, largely based on the various concerns that arise in each generation. So um, we are an argumentative bunch, there's no question about it. But there's a, d- a real difference between argument, you know, being argumentative to the point of division and argumentative to the point of just you know, annoying one another. Um, so the, the Torah comes and says, It says, um, it says your children to Hashem your God, got to do. It says you should not. And the, the way that the term literally means, is you should not cut yourself. That's the term, and like we we'll use a uh, sign of mourning in many of the pagan cultures, that it's sign of mourning you would start cutting yourself. So that's the way that it's literally understood. But the Madrash comes and understands is lo agudot agudot. You shouldn't make different groups. to uh, do means to can be like an aguda is a is an a, a group of people. And so it says you shouldn't make yourself separate groups, you shouldn't have separation. So the idea of you know, one shul dividing into multiple shuls is something that by and large is frowned upon. Um, any community subdividing is generally speaking frowned upon. What we do find in the modern era which is uh, changing in that regard is the understanding that diversity necessitates certain levels of division, not out of weakness but out of strength. Meaning that once upon a time it used to be that everybody should daven in the shame, same shoe with the same chazen and the same whatever. And that was a sign of strength, that you could have one shoe where everybody it. But if you go look what's happening in the religious world, which has existed you know, for some time in the commercial world, is that if we only offer one product, we're not going to be able to capture the market. So let's rather, if we just sell Coca-Cola, we'll sell a million bottles a year. But if we sell Coke, Fanta, Sprite... Could be that we won't sell a million bottles of Coke, but combined with the three of them, we'll sell a lot more than a million bottles. And that's really become the model within Jewish communities, understanding that we need to have, you know, the days of, you know, grandparents, children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, sitting next to each other in shul is a thing of the past. And we just sort of have to accept that. We may lament it, but we have to accept it, that we are now in the, where everybody wants to daven with their own age. And so the elderly would daven here, and the youngies would daven here, and the small ones would daven. And that is, but that is done usually, and hopefully, with the brocha and gardens of the leaders of the community, as opposed to um, a, a segregation that comes out of a sense of negativity. So let's go all the way to the, the divisions. Now, I mean, if you want to talk about divisions in the Jewish community, you need to look no further than the Tanakh itself, which as much as, uh, and as bad as the Jewish community has been over the, you know, our lifetime, and the troubles and for and that we've had in, in it, it compares nothing to what happened in Tanakhic times. Um, you we know, really read through the book of Shoftim, the book of Judges. So, biblical times, I mean, we already see some people bought golden calves, people were fighting, there's the rebellions and the like, but... You know, in the, in the book of Judges, so the way the, the Torah ends, then it's the book of Joshua, and then after the book of Joshua, it's the book of Judges. And the book of Judges tells of the first real civil war that existed. Now, when I talk of civil war, I'm not talking it in a, just throwing out the term. We're talking about a real murderous uh, wars against one another. It was run predominantly by a guy named Yiftach. So Yiftach was, a, um, was one of the judges. And uh, in one of the the wars that he waged, the tribe of Ephraim were very offended by the fact that they weren't considered worthy enough to join his coalition, and they became very antagonistic towards him. And that set off, um, as many battles start with an insult, so um, that started off a certain war. Now what becomes interesting about this particular battle between uh, Ephraim and the rest is the fact that the way that they could wean out the Ephraimites was that they had a, a a speech impediment, which I think you, if you were in Joshua a few months ago I spoke about the speech impediment, that they couldn't say the letter Shin. So that what would happen with them is they would uh, you know, they'd have a border crossing and when everybody came past, you said, are you from the tribe of Ephraim? They'd say, no, they said, okay, say the word Shibulet. And if they couldn't pronounce Shibulet, you knew they were from the tribe of Ephraim because th- that tribe had grown up, you know, with the inability to pronounce that particular letter. So that starts like the first real civil war. The second great civil war happens late in the Book of Judges, which is quite a dramatic um, episode that takes place called the Pelegish Begiva. And this is something you read in the, you know, this is like Braveheart a la William Wallace type story. So the story goes, there's a guy who uh, his wife, he was apparently not particularly nice to his wife, so she left him and goes to live with her father. After some time, he, you know, does Chuva and he says, okay, come, come come, back come back home. And he manages to convince his wife to come back with him. And they're heading on their way back home. And it gets dark at night. And they say, let's go spend the night in a place called Giva. So they go to Giva. And they're sitting in the square. And uh, you know, a, a gentleman comes up to them and says, listen, guys, you just don't stick around here. Come and stay with me because it's just not safe to stay in the square. So within you know, a short amount of time of them entering this guy's house, there's a mob at the door. Who are very uh, concerned of who exactly th- this gentleman and his uh, his 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 concubine is, and what they're doing there. They demand that uh, they are re- you know sent out in order that they should ha- that the, the mob should have their way with them, to have some level of lynching. Um, eventually, the guy just throws his concubine. His, 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 his it's not his concubine it's not his wife it's his concubine. He just throws her out. A concubine, for all and purposes, just halachically a concubine was a wife that didn't get a ketubah. So all intents and purposes, it was a marriage built in certain fidelity, but there was no financial obligation of the husband towards the wife in the event of separation. But if they were to separate, they would need to get. So there is some level. So he throws his uh, concubine out, and she is literally raped to death, to the point that in the morning when they get up, she is dead on the doorstep. Now, this, is, this, is, this isn't Medrash or stuff. This is told in the Tanakh. Now, this individual, who clearly was quite a colorful individual of himself, is completely horrified by this and chops her body up into 12 pieces, sending one piece to every tribe to say, look at this outrage that has happened in the tribe of Benjamin. This, this city called Giva is in the tribe of Benjamin. So, a, a new coalition of the 11 tribes uh, you know, come together and pretty much uh, surround Benjamin and say, listen, this, this city of Giva is completely out of control. Um, we feel that you don't have the ability to bring these people to justice, so hand them over so that we can uh, deal with them. To which the Benjamites say back, this is domestic issue, stop getting involved, stay out of this. And uh, you know the rest of the tribe say, we must insist. And Benjamin says, no. And becomes another war. And uh, in, in fact, the first two battles, Benjamin is successful. But in the third battle... Uh, the rest of the tribes overcome Benjamin and almost eradicate Benjamin completely to the point that Benjamin becomes, from a, from a population point of view, an insignificant number within the Jewish populations. Which is why, even though, I mean just parenthetically, we are called the Jews because of, uh, in the, of the people that remained, we'll talk about them shortly, but of the people that remained in the post-destruction era, the majority of them were from the tribe of Judah truth be told is we're not all from the tribe of Judah. Some of us obviously from the tribe of Levi. But there are also people from the tribe of Benjamin. But since Benjamin was such an insignificant amount, everyone just became Jews. And that's why we were Jews. So that's, uh, so, so that's like from a Tanakhic point of view, in the formative period of Tanakh, those are the real divisions that we see. What doesn't become over there is permanent sex. It just becomes an in battle between us. The first real division that creates two separate tracks of Judaism <laughs> happens in the time immediately in the aftermath of the death of King Solomon. So in biblical times, well really from the time of the end of Yaakov's death, Yaakov says that the mantle of leadership will always be in the hand of the tribe of Judah. And so when we get to Israel and Joshua, who was from the tribe of Ephraim, conquered the land eventually when it was going to come time to build the temple and to have a monarchy it was always thought that Judah would be the one in charge, and the first king of Judah is, is King David, and King David is, you know, passes on. He's not the first king; he's the first king of Judah. The first king is King Saul, from Benjamin, so which is a, a story in of itself. But um, King David uh, does a great deal of conquest around the land of Israel, but never merits, due to that conquest, to build the temple himself. Hashem says, you know, David desperately wants to build the temple. Hashem refuses him as a result of him having too much blood in his hand. And the temple, there's supposed to be a place of peace, couldn't be built by the person who had such soiled hands. So his son, King Solomon, builds it. And then one of the things that was necessary for the building of the temple, obviously, was to tax people. And so taxes, enormous tax revenues were levied amongst the, amongst the people. And people had to, had to, um, were conscripted not so much into the army, I mean they were conscripted into the army, but conscripted into forced labor on, to other tribes and other nations as, a, as an, an attempt to basically pay for the sustenance and well-being of the temple and, and, the, and the monarchy in general. When King Solomon passed away, his son Rehoboam. Um, took over and just carried on in a much harsher way. At this point in time, people said this is this is enough. The taxes is too much. That we are basically pouring this is Western Australia saying, why are we carrying the whole of Australia on out with our tax burden? Then why should we do such a thing? And they said that's it. We are gonna secede from the from the state. And a guy named Yaravan Benavat, basically he takes Everybody aside and you become this division in the kingdom that the temp that Judah and the monarchy of Judah is considered no longer relevant. It becomes a whole new monarchic line that happens and a whole new temple structure that starts existing in what's called the northern kingdom. So for hundreds of years, you have these two parallel kingdoms existing one called, you know, the tribes of Yehudah. As we said before, and the other called the tribes of Israel. Now the tribes of Israel there were ostensibly uh, ten tribes. That's well, they weren't really ten tribes. They were probably nine tribes. But the, these kingdom, the northern kingdom, was considered like the tribes of Israel. with the southern kingdoms were Judah, Benjamin, Shimon, who were sort of subsumed within the tribe of Judah, and and Levi. So the the. What happened is these two sort of kingdoms, although we don't see enormous amount of uh, written about um, active conflict between the two, they operate as two separate entities, literally with very little to do with one another. So, for example, if you go through the Tanakh and you can open up the Tanakh, you'll see that there were two separate you know, kings happening at all the time. And when the prophets come along, sometimes the prophets are prophesying for the kings of Judah, and sometimes they're prophesying for the kings of, uh, of Israel. So perhaps the most notable story that you would be familiar with is Elijah. So Elijah is prophesizing for King Ahab, King Ahab, who was one of the kings of the tribes of Israel. And the whole story on the top of Mount Carmel, Neil, Neil Haifa, this is people familiar with the story, a little bit familiar with the story. So, so that happens over there. Now, this is pretty much during first temple period, this this division continues. What happens is the Assyrians coming from the north, led by a guard that is called Sancheiruv, and he conquers the northern tribes and sends them on. What? Tigla Paliza. Is that, is that, is that the, the term that is used? Okay. Yeah. Tigla Paliza. So, how do we get to San Kheriv? I'm not Tigla. sure. I don't know. Okay. The guy who lost that five. was Barney's predecessor. No. You had a dog named Tigla Paliza. Mm. It's an interesting name for a dog. Okay. Uh, well, dare I ask why your dog was named after an evil Assyrian king? Long story. Okay. So to, to be told afterwards. Okay. So basically what happens now is Pileser or Sancheirev as he's known, he comes in and conquers the entire ten tribes and sends him out into exile. The exile, these 10 tribes' exile is pretty much unknown to us up until this very day. The, one possible notable, well, the two possible notable exceptions one being the tribe of Dan, and that is uh, the Ethiopian Jews. Now, when I say that when they claim to be from the tribe of Dan, it's not because in the 20th century the Ethiopians rocked up and said, We're from the tribe of Dan, but rather in the 6th century or in the 5th century already, you've got people claim there's a guy named um, Eldadadani. Which was an individual. We get this in the loss. I don't know if anyone was in the series I did last year. We talked about controversies in in, in Israeli history. Remember, so we talked about Eldad Adani, who was a, a real, real, really early uh, individual who tells the story of how the tribe of Dan actually left prior to Sanhaj's arrival and, and traveled through and through Egypt and down and settled in Ethiopia. And there has been multiple. You know, literature, tons of literature that has existed throughout Jewish history talking about this Ethiopian community and acknowledging the fact that they are descendants of the tribe of Dan. Now, we see this not only in the, uh, you know, in early, you know, s- you know, 7th, 7th century, 6th, 5th century. We also see it in uh, relatively modern, between two, 300 years ago, Israel Israel Hildesheimer, who was the big rov in Berlin in the 1800s, who did uh, enormous, Rev. Like Herzog, who was the first chief rabbi of the modern state of Israel, who did enormous amount of work to, you know, to try support the Ethiopian community. The other exception uh, to that rule is the Bnei Menashe. Now the Bnei Menashe, I'm not certain how, how much they actually haven't studied enough about them to know whether Bnei Menashe is just the name they use or whether they actually claim to be from the tribe of Menashe. But this is uh, Jews that exist in certain parts of India. They look Asian rather than Indian, but um, they're called the Bnei Menashe. But every now and again you see YouTube videos that pop up left, right and center about people who have certain levels of Jewish um, Jewish practices, people see, I think in Papua New Guinea we see those, these tribal people saying the Shema together and bits and pieces all over. But by and large, these tribes are lost. In a sense that in most of these cases, we say even if a person would come to you and tell you he's from one of these tribes, we have to assume that he's not Jewish. And this was a big controversy in the modern side of Israel about the status of the Ethiopian Jews. Could we consider them Jewish? Could we not? It's been spoken about before because they never had the Talmud in commentaries to go along. They had a very, they had a Tanakh, but the Tanakh wasn't exactly the same. And uh, So it's very hard to, you know, if you have a system where there's no real halachic marriage and halachic divorce, what's the status of the children? So on the one hand, you want them to not be Jewish, because if they are Jewish, you've got problems of mamzerim. So you don't want them to be Jewish, because you know, there's no such thing as a mums in the non-Jewish world. On the other hand, you want them to be Jewish, so they don't have to conversion. So it's a very controversial uh, topic that's so existed. Um, th- this the, the big champion of, this, of the Ethiopian community was Rabbi Vadi Yosef, who he came out and said that they don't need any conversion. Um, that being said, is, I'm, I'm not sure it's was blanketly accepted, and there's no question whatsoever that within the Jewish world, um, racism is as strong as it is in every other world. So even if a guy comes with a pedigree of Rabbi Vadi Yosef to come and say that these people are legitimately Jewish, that is in no way meaning that. Joe average Jew in Israel is going to be happy with their child marrying an Ethiopian, so Yeah, so that's, it's purely academic in a large scheme of things um, Yeah, all right now, okay, so Tachesis is the, the the story goes as it's told in the book of Malachim that when they ca- when Sancheirov Whatever came to um, lay siege on that the the soldiers were hit with a terrible uh, famine and uh, a famine plague and died overnight, this is a, we're actually going to be reading this Haftarah in a few weeks' time. In Pasha Matsura, we talk about uh, there were three um, lepers or two lepers that were walking outside the village, and you know they went into the camp of San Kheriv and everybody was dead, and they were the ones who told Israel, "Listen, you know. so this is the time of Cheskiyahu Melech." So, um, so, they, so we survived the original onslaught from If who never managed to conquer us, We had to wait until Nebuchadnezzar, who came, uh, came in a few, uh, few years later, and he eventually did destroy the temple. So that's the first real division that we see, and uh, I mean, there's, there's a division that exists up until this very day. Not so much a division within the community, but something that divided the community from what was the community into two separate groups. Uh, the second time, which... Um, Perhaps doesn't have many modern modern manifestations, although the legacy of them does. Is that is what we call the the difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. So within the Second Temple period, you had a number of different groups existing, and it's hard to draw clear lines that they were so uh, clearly defined between them. But by and large, you had three main groups. You had the Pharisees, who we are the descendants of. The word in Pharisee in Hebrew is prushim, which means uh, somewhat separated. And the Pushim, the big thing about them was uh, largely understanding the Torah that came in conjunction with the Torah Shabbat, the oral tradition. And that there was a r- concept of rabbinic authority, and that uh, the rabbinic authority had, a certain, had legitimacy and had to, be, they had to go through a certain central structure called a Sanhedrin and a Baiting. And that was rabbinic Judaism, and rabbinic Judaism that was largely opposed by Jesus and co. Um, on the other side of the coin, you had the Sadducees, who were far more aristocratic. In the and their belief in the oral tradition was non-existent, and their uh, idea of of Judaism was far more uh, relegated into the areas of ritual worship as well as understanding the literal text as is. Now we have a lot of practices even that we keep till this very day that are based on Sadducean uh, concerns. So, for example, in uh, two weeks ago's Pasha, you know, Pasha it says. Um, Lord varu aish votechimbi on Shabbat, that you should not have a fire burning in your home on the day of Shabbos. So the literal understanding is that you're not allowed to have a fire in your house on Shabbos, so end of story. So the Pharisaic, Pharisaic understanding of it is, no, you're not allowed to light a fire on Shabbat, but to have a fire burning in your house is permissible. So the Sadducean understanding of it says, you're not allowed to have a fire in your house. So Sadducees would never have any light on Shabbos. They wouldn't have candles, wouldn't have light, and they would not have hot food. So Allah the, uh, came the custom, within the Ashkenazi, not Ashkenazi, within the, within the Jewish community, was that you have to have hot food at a Shabbos meal, a Shabbos lunch. And the whole idea being that is to show Badafka that where the Sadducees say that you're not allowed to have hot, hot have fun, we Badafka do. So it's so much so that if you go to a person and say that you can't get, uh, you go to, if I come to you for lunch and you only serve me cold, I have to check your lineage. You know, it could be that you are a in descent. I mean, the, oh, this is in Talmudic times, not so much in the modern era, but, but it's very interesting to get, you know, I'm in the process of organizing the bar mitzvah. Um, so I, had, uh, I was speaking to the caterers, and they said, oh, you can have fish and stuff, or you can have, like, cold meats and salads and whatnot. So I said, why can't you have, like, hot meats? Shabbos. So I said, so? you I, I can't have hot food on Shabbos. I said, why can't I have hot food on Shabbos? They said, well, you know, how are you going to heat it up? I said, use a hot plate. Oh, no, you're not allowed to do that. Like, I promise you, you are. Like, I mean, like with respect to the caterers, you can have hot food on the And not only can you, according to this whole idea, you have to. The third group of individuals were the Essenes. The Essenes are the, were, were um, not esoteric, but ascetic. They were ascetic Jews that really withdrew themselves completely from the frivolities and mundanities of physical life. These were the Khevra who landed up writing the Dead Sea Scrolls. I mean, as much as the Dead Sea Scrolls have a certain nostalgic ring to them, and we say, "Oh, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls," the people who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls would not be part of our tzibur. You know, these were not part of our community. They were very much marginalised sect and had very little to do with with the mainstream community. They were very isolated. Now, within the Pharisee, what year, what year was that we're talking about the you know the the beginning two thousand years ago. We're talking the Second Temple the period. Dead sea Oh, the Sea Scrolls is also around that period of time. You're talking about 100 to 200 years before the Common Era, up until about 100 years after the Common Era, that of period of time. Now, within the Pharisaic, Pharisaic community, you do have other subsequent groups. I've actually just finished the... Um, well, I'm currently finishing a book on the, the Sages and talking about the the, the, the the conflict that existed within the Jewish community during the Roman Revolt. So... Once, once the Romans laid siege on Yerushalayim, you had two main groups of thoughts. You had the, you know, the rabbinic leadership who said, "Listen, let's surrender. Let's, you know, the, the, the jig is up. Let's see what you know, Let's try, uh, try negotiate as much as we can to see what we can do." And um, and, so, and the other group of people were the were the zealots, the um By going Ben sikra Ben sikra Ben who ran it, and their role was really said, we are going to fight tooth and nail against the Romans. And they burnt all the food and the resources of Jerusalem. Apparently, according to the Gemara, there was enough food within the walls of Jerusalem to last the siege that would go out for seven years. But the Rezelits burnt it all out and forced the hand of the Jewish people to say that we've got to fight these people. The way the story ends up is uh, the leader of the Jewish people, a guy named ben feigned his own death Managed to escape the walls of Jerusalem and met up with the local Roman commander, and basically said to him, "Listen, give Tzvi Yavna the Chachamereh. Let let uh, start a yeshiva in Yavna, and we'll you know, then you know, we'll be on our way." And that's exactly what happens. Jerusalem is destroyed. The zealots eventually, you know, flee there, head up to Masada, and you know that's that's a, a, an interesting story. Um, the whole Masada story is an interesting story because it is one that has been used within modern Zionistic literature as a story of great heroism and greatness, but throughout Talmudic literature, it always looked as a real big blemish on the Jewish history. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's quite funny. I, I, the way that this manifests itself in modern Israel is quite fascinating. That if you are reformed and you want to have a bomb mitzvah at a holy site in Israel, you cannot because all the holy sites are under the auspices of the chief rabbinate, and the chief rabbinate will not allow non-Orthodox uh, services to take place there. So where do they have their mitzvahs? Masada. So Masada has one of the oldest schools in Israel, up on the top of this. I think it's the second oldest after Jericho, and um, that's, where, that's where reform, bar, and bat mitzvahs take place, up in the Masada. So, why? Well, because it's of absolutely no religious significance. The people of Masada were not heroes, the people of Masada. Like, this is from a Talmudic point of view. They, these were not people that were to be uh, emulated. So these Sadducees and Pharisees, the Sadducees have said don't exist anymore, but their descendants do. And when I say the descendants, not their uh, genetic descendants, but their cultural descendants. So we've had a number of people that have existed throughout Jewish history that, by and large, they're not exact uh, 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 descendants, but the, the, the philosophy of is only the written tradition, there is no oral that goes along with it, is done by not notably the Samaritans, who do exist today. I don't know if anyone's ever had the privilege of meeting Samaritans. So Samaritans um, live, as their name suggests, in Samaria, up in the northern, uh, you know, the West Bank. They are Arabs, but they are not Muslims. They are Samaritans, and they hold by the Jewish tradition. My, my brother-in-law when he was in the army um, He had to protect Samaritans On one particular day When it was their Pesach They had to offer their Korban Pesach Their Passover offering And they had to offer it If you go look to their doors If you, if you Google Samaritan mezuzah You'll see that they do exactly what it says Uchtav tam am mezuzah which should write them on the doorpost of your house So that's exactly what they do They write them on the doorpost of their house As opposed to We write it on a scroll And stick the scroll on the doorpost They actually write it on the doorpost So Samaritans do exist well, <laughs> you know, there's, there's uh... a <laughs> – so Samaritans are, yes, they are um, the good Samaritan misdames, you know, from that whole river. So And then perhaps most recently, which also still exists, are the people called carrots. So, Karaites are they much later sect. I'm, I don't, off the top of my head, can't remember exactly what year, but they do still exist. And even in the Old City in Jerusalem, in the Jewish quarter, there's still a Karat synagogue. I don't know how often it functions, I don't know how big the Karat community is, but the Karaites do exist. And that is, again, another group that exists with the written tradition without any oral accompaniment. So, those are the three think groups. The bulk of them are in either or the carrots? Yeah, the total of about 30,000. In the world or in Israel? Uh, okay. Well, most of them are in Israel. There are a yeah. few in Russia, in one part of Russia, otherwise yeah. in Israel. And nearly all are in, I can't remember which, actually, I should know. Okay. So, that's a, if I mean, I don't know if they were, but were the Pharisees and the Sadducees roughly equal in number at some point? I don't but know. If, if so, I, guess, okay, I mean, what led to the survival of the Pharisees and the, or the Pharisaic tradition? What? The Sadducees are, I guess, just a very small. Well, you'll see what happens with Judaism in general once you start. I mean, this uh, I can only give you a religious answer rather than a historical answer for this. But it seems that once you divorce the oral tradition from the written tradition, you see that there's not much longevity to that movement, and we we'll see that time and time again, because the easier. I mean, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs gave a, an interesting lecture once. We asked. Someone in the audience said to him, if Judaism was easier to keep, more people would keep it. So he did a survey. He said, okay, let's test your theory. He says, which is the hardest festival within the Jewish religion to keep? And he said, Yom Kippur. He said, all right, and which is the easiest? Uh, Mr. Shavuot." So he said, all right, who here fasts on Yom Kippur and never puts their hand up? And he says, who here goes to shul and Shavuot and no one puts their hand up? He says, I caught your theory just falls flat. Is that somehow making a, a more lenient Religion does not bring people in, and we'll talk about that when we get to reform. Let me talk a little bit later. Okay. All right, the next big division, uh, and this is a division which exists until this very day and has existed in a way that, ironically, even though in every other division that we have, there's going to be a lot of conflict. This one they've had conflict, and that is division between Ashkenazim and Svari. So this, the, the Ashkenazi Svari divide, no one really knows. I gave a course, about an eight-week course um, after Kiddush and Shabbatot, just talking about the differences between Ashkenazim and Sephardim and the origins behind them. And needless to say, that no one really knows. It's clear that the Sephardi community, you know, developed and uh, has its history in, um, in Spain and, 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 and surrounds the Mediterranean, whereas the Ashkenazi community, the word Ashkenaz in Hebrew is generally referring to Germany, and it has spread throughout those parts. But the actual origins of how they got there and from whence did they come is divided amongst a lot of the historians. From the point that you had two main Jewish communities within within Israel, those that you know that led to two separate Talmuds. So if you go into the into the library, you got two Talmud. When I say the Talmud says ninety nine percent of the time, I'm referring to what's called the Babylonian Talmud. But there's also a Jerusalem Talmud, and the Jerusalem and Babylonian Talmud don't entirely agree. Uh, Ju- the ba- Babylonian Talmud is far more comprehensive far more studied, and far more, what you call, halachal is is far more practical, whereas the Jerusalem Talmud is far more um, used as, a, as an, an additional source text. But very seldom we're going to say, what's the law? It says, well, the Jerusalem Talmud says this, so that's what we do. No one says that. It would come out of the Babylonian Talmud. The Jerusalem Talmud and Jerusalem life was far more um, restrictive, and so large levels of um, oral tradition literature Did not come out of Jerusalem, and rather what developed out of Jerusalem was medrash, medrash and 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 commentaries on chumash and poetry, which comes much more out of that community. Whereas out of Babylon, you have much more of the uh, of the uh, of of the Talmudic uh, literature coming out. So the Talmud, I mean, if you've ever had the privilege of studying some Talmud, I mean, the Talmud has something close to I think seven and a half thousand folios, double-sided pages. So the way, I'm not exactly sure which time, it's, I think it was it says the Vilna Shas. I'm going to assume it was around the 1700s, they standardized um, the Talmud. And uh, so that everyone in the world, if they say, you know, I learned Talmud, you can say what page are you on? Any Talmud you open anywhere in the world, of that particular chapter, the same page is the same. So whereas you have multiple editions of yourself, I'm learning the Tanakh, I have to use chapter references and, and verses and the like. In Talmud you just use page numbers. It's identical page number throughout. So, the Ashkenazi and communities developed differently for multiple reasons. None, you know, predominantly the the nature of the different cultures that they found themselves in. You know, as much as we, as Jews, like to keep ourselves apart from the nations as well as a part of the nation reality is, is, that the Sfaridi communities developed largely, you know, due to the external Muslim and uh, and Spanish influences that they had. The Ashkenazi communities became very much like the European communities that they had, and through that came the the, the huge divisions between not only pronunciation, on uh, the so Ashkenazi and Sfaridi, you know, the the natures of the liturgy, so the services. If you go to Sfaridi shul, sure, in, in certain extreme cases, it's almost impossible to follow. So if you go to an Edo to Mizrahi, you got a Yemenite community. Uh, with an Ashkenazi settle, you probably find it very very difficult to follow at all. Swai communities is a bit easier you know it's not that different, but um these divisions exist hello Aye? sorry no worries. Um, so the um so, so you have uh, pr- pronunciations, liturgy, and also practices. Uh, halakhically, halachically, by and large, the Sephardi community has always considered it has always been considered a far more lenient and um, way of looking at halacha. There are notable exceptions, but the Ashkenazi community is always considered much more stringent. The best place I've seen this is in Pesach, so where the Sephardi community has never had the restrictions of kitniot, which. In Australia, it doesn't make a huge difference, but when you're in Israel, it's the difference between whether you can go buy everything you usually buy and whether you can only buy. Every, I mean, I remember when I was living in Israel, you know, 80% of the shop, Shtadim could shop in, and 10% Ashkenazim could. I mean, it was it was, it was quite ridiculous. Um, But what what becomes quite interesting is the origins behind the differences, because as much as the Ashkenazi community is a lot more stringent, there's one area of halacha where Sephardim are far more stringent, and that is in the areas that are rabbinic decrees to prevent intermarriage, which is quite fascinating, because by and large the Ashkenazi communities always found themselves in very hostile territories, and there's one thing that always prevents assimilation, and that's anti-Semitism. The, the non-Jew has always been the individu- was, was always the one who would determine the levels of intermarriage. It was never the Jewish community. So, in Ashkenazi communities, the non-Jew did not want to have anything to do with us. And uh, similarly, we landed up staying very different. So, the concepts of assimilation were very foreign. It was not until the Enlightenment that we start seeing gross, you know, enormous uh, trends of Ashkenazi Jews either converting to Christianity or just completely losing all uh, tradition. Within the Sephardic community, this was something that's far more of a problem much earlier on. So what are these areas of halacha? So they all have to do with social interaction. Drinking with non-Jews, eating the bread of non-Jews, and eating food prepared by non-Jews. These were all the areas that Ashkenazim are far more lenient than Sephardim. So for example, so these are terms called Bishu Akum. So if, so if a non-Jew cooks a meal, even if it's 100% kosher, there's a rabbinic decree that you're not allowed to eat it. Drinking, you know, going to pubs and uh, socializing with non-Jews, and um, and bread, which was considered a staple of the meal. So we're talking of times of communal ovens rather than everybody cooking in their own home. But the Sephardi community was far more concerned about the assimilation than Ashkenazim were, and so it's one of the areas that till this very day is considered far more stringent within the Sephardi community than Ashkenazim. But One thing that has never happened, there's never been questions, even though there have been numbers of debates between Ashkenazi and Sephardi, and bless you, there's never been a concern that an Ashkenazi or a Sephardi somehow don't recognize the legitimacy of the other, which has existed in every other group. We'll see within every other division within the Jewish community, there has been a question of who is the more legitimate. Now, since the establishment of the state, is probably the only time that there has been a question about the legitimacy, not so much the legitimacy. In a, in a, let's say, a halakhic sense, but legitimacy in a sense of do we have uh, value. So the Sephardi community, if you're not familiar with modern state of Israel politics, has been very marginalized um, within the state of Israel. And, and the, let's say, what we, you know, the Sephardi community would consider that they have been very much the um, uh, prejudiced against and I think it would be fair to say that uh, the, the majority of the middle upper class in Israel is Ashkenazi rather than Sephardi. They're definitely the early Zionists were all Ashkenazi. So the would have always been marginalized and the Sephardim resent the fact and take on a very victim type status within the modern state of Israel. And so in an attempt to over, over, you know, overcome that, there has been an enormous amount of effort put within the Sephardi community to to return the great crown to the Sephardi community. So, so talk of uh, you know the Ashkenazim are better than Ashkenazim is something that has come up much more recently than it existed through antiquity there wasn't, there didn't seem to be a lot of fights between Ashkenazim and we were all very happy to say that the Rambam was one of the greatest rabbis of all time and he was Svati and so was the Rabbin al-Fasi who was the Riff from Morocco and uh, the Ramban and and it's multiple of these Rabbinim who were Svati and we were very proud to call them our you know our uh, spiritual ancestors but in the modern era it has become a little bit more competitive so if you meet uh, if you if you go and meet a Sfadi in the street today, there's a good chance you'll say, ah, hey, Ashkenazim, yeah. You know, the, and, and, and vice versa. So that does exist, but um, it is purely uh more political than religious in that particular regard. Okay, so that's uh, Ashkenazim and Sfradi. Um, okay. So now this, we're gonna, gonna jump a few, you know, centuries ahead and we're going to the eighteenth century, and this is perhaps um Outside of uh, from, from probably from the Sadducee Pharisee era, there was no greater division in the Jewish community until the Hasidic revolution of the of the eighteenth century. So understand that within the Jewish community, the thing that has always been valued has been wisdom that it is something that we 've always prided ourselves on, and that the rabbi of the town was always the, the holy pious one. We never lauded warriors, we never looked to, to might, we always looked to wisdom. And so the idea of being educated and being a Talmudic scholar was always something held in very high regard in Ashkenazi community. It was always the rov. In the Sephardi community, it was always the Chacha. Now the problem with this is it creates a great uh, elitist structure that still exists within the Haredi community today. So one of the big problems that exists within the modern state of Israel is that within the Haredi community, what happens to the kid who just is not a not a Talmudic scholar? Say so he's got learning difficulties. So what is, what's he going to do? He goes to, you know, goes to Yeshiva, just, he just can't learn. But because of the nature of the community, it's very hard for this kid to go out and get a secular education and to get a trade. And that's become one of the big challenges that you, know, you can only have so many rabbinim. You can't have, not everyone can be a rabbi. Everyone can be a learned scholar, but not everyone can be a rabbi. There's just know, you know how these people are going to support themselves. So what happened within Eastern Europe is that you had this, this idea of the rabbinic scholar and they became enormous rabbinic elitism. That you had the real Jews, who were the scholars, and you had the supporters, you had the Tevye of the Milkmans, who were seen with a certain level of disdain. Wealth always married wisdom. And we spoke about this a few weeks ago, and then when we talked about the, one of the theories about why Jews are successful. And uh, wealth married wisdom, or wisdom married wisdom. And it really kept the Tevye of the Milkmen, you know, really in the dust. You know, the guy was invariably illiterate, and even if he was literate in a very simple sense of the word, he didn't learn. He didn't learn very much. He didn't know. He wasn't a Talmudic scholar as much as people think of the Alter Where you know, the chances are your grandparents didn't learn Talmud. You now, the chances are your grandparents were not uh, very literate within Jewish uh, Jewish knowledge of any form. So that was that was the environment. Now, my tomorrow's great great-grandfather, was the rov of, of of a particular shu in Hungary called the Khevrei Shas. Now, what's the Khevrei Shas? So, the word Shas is an acronym for Shisha Sidre, which is, if you, if you know your who-knows-one, you know, Shishe Shisha Shisha Sidre Mishnah, the six tractates of the Mishnah, which becomes the, really the, 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 the core of what the Talmud so, the Chevre Shas was a synagogue that you need to have completed the whole Talmud before you were considered uh, worthy of becoming a member of the synagogue. This was the environment that Joe Average, the, 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 the farmer, the milkman, he did not have a place in the kingdom of heaven. The Jewish people was made of, of aristocratic elitists, not financial in as much as from a wisdom. So, in comes a guy who's known as the the Bolshem Tov. And the Baal Shem Tov, amongst other things, really tried to create a new kind of Judaism that embraced the layman by saying that you too can aspire to closeness to Hashem. All you need to do is attach yourself to a tzaddik. And this, I'm really simplifying this, so please don't uh, say, you know, Krebs said this is all, I am simplifying it. But the idea being that at the Hasidic movement is that we understood that you couldn't be a Talmud Chacha. But that doesn't mean that you can't be holy. And that does not mean that you can't be close to Hashem. So what you need to do is you find a Chacham, you find a, not a Chacham, a Tzadik, you find a pious individual, and you attach yourself to that pious individual. And that pious individual will allow you, through him, to connect to the celestial realms in a way that no one else can. And these these pious people largely became... um, not only a, a spiritual guide, in a sense that they would give you spiritual advice, that was beyond halachic advice. So you had, and if you recall the series that we had with, um, with Rabbi Shapiro, the difference between a Rebbe and a Rov, is where the Rov's role was to give you practical halachic advice. The question is, is this kosher? Is this not kosher? But the question is, what should I name my kid? You know, this is not a question you ask me. You now, should I have particular surgery? This is not a question that you would ask the, the rabbi. But it was a question that you asked the rabbi. And the rabbi would become very intimately involved. Now, the rabbi, you should know, did not need any particular qualifications to become the rabbi. So, for example, the rov, one would hope, and this is not entirely true all of the time, but the rov was the most learned guy in the town. There's no question there was a lot of um, um, paternalism. The term I'm using for? You know, choosing your own children and choosing your own. Nepotism. Huh? Nepotism. Nepotism, thank you. That's the term I was looking for. So there's no question that, you know, Rosh Hashivas would hand over the role to their sons, even if the son was not necessarily the, the best individual for the job. And this, uh, it was very interesting. There's an interesting uh, study done with the Khatam Sofer, so Ramosha Sofer, Ramosha Shraba, who was uh, 1700s pr- uh, Hungary in uh, Bratislava, Bratislava Pressburg. So he was the rov over there, and he was asked the question about handing, you know, Yerusha, you know, inheritance in the rabbinate, and in the formative years of his career, when he was asked the question, he said, absolutely not, you you can't hand it over to your children, yet when he got much older, his tune changed somewhat, that he insisted that his, uh, his children take over his pulpit, so, yeah, something of that. So, so... So this whole, you know, so the Hasidim, this was like the real modus of So you'd get a person who'd become the Tzaddik, or bec- and, and the, this term the Tzaddik be developed into what we know as a Rebbe. And the Rebbe's role was to basically fight your battles with Hashem. He would pray with you on your behalf. He could achieve things that you couldn't, but by tapping into him you'd be able to achieve those things. It was, it and you the way that it was presented became very, very controversial because all of a sudden the Talmudic scholar who's been spending 20 years in yeshiva has, uh, the Mukman come up to him and say, I am also close to Hashem. He says, you don't know your olive bait. How is it possible that you could be so close to Hashem? And all the stories, which no doubt you've heard of pulpits before, uh, most likely next door, not here, um, about the stories about the, the young shepherd boy who comes into the shul and, and, the, the, the Rebbe stops and he says, well, hold on, we, we, ha- we have to, this guy's got to lead the davening and he doesn't know how to daven, he just knows the Aleph so He just says, Aleph Bait, and he just says it over and over and says, Hashem, you arrange the letters and you you formulate the prayers. You would never hear that in, a, in, a, in, a, in, in, the, in the old Yeshiva's world. It's like, there's a way to daven. There's a siddur you got to daven, the siddur way. There's no such thing as doing things your own way. So, this was the model, and the real goal was to create a certain level of egalitarianism. It wasn't a matter that uh, we, that it is there was too much elitism within Judaism, and we really needed to allow people to feel that they could have a legitimate part. So originally, these were the people who you know it swept up, it swept out the, the masses, and it f- it went across Europe like wildfire. Now, one of the other things that you know that the Hasidic movement really prom- promoted was a, a big emphasis on the mystical. And Chassidus, which is the study of, you know, of, you know, of the Hasidim, was very heavily influenced with Kabbalistic writings and concepts. Now, if you recall from last week, this movement started almost in the immediate aftermath of the whole Shabtai Tzvi debacle. So the, so the, 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 the establishment, then you start seeing, bless you, a holy man who apparently can do miracles, and this is one of the things of the rabbis, it was, you know, the... There's a cute story of the rabbis. I mean The three three Hasidim are walking down the street. The one says, you, you know, my Rebbe is the most, you know, he's the holiest of rabbis." And they said, how? So he says, you know, we're walking home from Shul. And so yeah, I think I told you this one. He says, we're walking home from Shul. And it started pouring with rain. And the Rebbe davened. And on the left of the Rebbe it was raining. On the right of the Rebbe it was raining. Bef- behind and in front of him was raining. But where the Rebbe stood, he was bone dry. So the second Hasidim says, you think your Rebbe's is impressive, my Rebbe? We And a swarm of bees attacked us. And the Rebbe davened and the bees came and they came and they literally came. We all got stung but the Rebbe it was if there was a shield around him that the bees did not touch him. So the third class said, my Rebbe he, he, your guys they might be able to manipulate the elements they may be able to manipulate nature but ours can manipulate the spiritual world. It was a Shabbos morning and we were walking to shore, and we looked on the ground there's a hundred dollar note. The Rebbe davened. On the Left of the Rebbe it was Shabbos. And the right of the Rebbe it was Shabbos. In <laughs> front and behind him was Shabbos, but with the Rebbe stood, it wasn't Shabbos. Okay, that's a that is a misnagdisha joke, as you can appreciate. Anyway, so 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 you know now we've got we've got Tevye the milkman, who's learning mysticism. He's attaching himself to a holy man, he's calling himself um, a pious holy Jew. The, this was something very controversial. And the response from the establishment was incredibly strong and was incredibly aggressive. Now, the chief protagonist of the anti-Hasidic movement was the Vilna uh, Gaon, Rabbi Eli- Elijah of Vilna. And he was the undisputed champion of rabbinic, uh, rabbinic wisdom. It was, he was, there was no one close to him. And the big problem was the fact that the Hasidic knew it. No one could, you, you can't, you know, there's certain people who can say, hey, well, you hold by your Rebbe, I hold by my Rebbe. The, the Vilna Gaon ha, had so, held such gravitas that the Hasidim had to figure out how it is that we can continue without, you know, deflect all the, you know, the, the battles of the Vilna Goan. And multiple stories have arisen, both in the time and post. So the most, possibly the most notable story is based on a, a story that everyone agrees happened. But exactly what happened is not clear. The story goes is that the, the third generation, so the first generation of Hasidim was the Baal Shem Tov. His Talmud was Rav, uh, the Magid of Mezerich was the second one. And the third generation, amongst others, was the, the first Lubavitcher uh, Rebbe, Rav, um, um, Rav Zalman of Liadi. What's it? Shneer Zalman of Liadi. So the story goes that Rav Shneel Zalman went with some of his Hasidim to go meet the Vilna in an attempt. Because the Vilna wrote a Khairim. A khayrim, he excommunicated the Hasidim. An excommunication that stands until this very day. Okay? So he went and um, uh, the, he went to go meet the Vilna and the Vilna refused to meet him. That's, that is the story that everybody agrees on. What everybody disagrees on is why he refused to meet him. The the Hasidic version is, is because he was under pressure from his Balabatim that uh, not to meet with uh, the Hasidim. The others is that he knew that if he met with the um, with the with the, the Rebbe, that the Rebbe would convince him, and he himself would become a Hasid, uh, and so on and so forth. That's the Hasidic version. The misnagdic version was because he saw these people as uh, you know, he, he wanted nothing to do with him. You don't meet with a you don't meet with heretics, and we don't want anything to do with him. And you know, it's simple as that. One way or another, the Vilna Gaon's chayyim uh, exists till this very day. Um, there has been some attempt. Um, there were some attempts post him to to try tone down. Um, a lot of the rhetoric and to a large degree in the modern era, the the division between Hasidic and Misnagdish is purely academic rather than practical. You go to to Minin at the kotel. you have Hasidim, you have Misnagdim, they all join together. Now a large part of the um, opposition to the Hasidic movement were a lot of their practices because they took on a lot of practices that were just very, very strange and foreign. So first and foremost is the, the dress. Now, now uh, this has not changed a lot. I mean, the, the only Hasidim that have in any way changed the dress in the last, you know, hundreds of years is Lubavitch. because whereas every other Hasid, you know you're Hasid when you see him because he wears a strimal. But Lubavitch were the only, are the only Hasidim that switched when they came to America. That, uh, the previous Lubavitch, not this one, the, one's the one who passed away, the, his father-in-law, um, who uh, insisted on coming to America? They wear hats, but the idea of wearing kapotas. So the kapotas, the the long, you know, the long coats, uh, davening with garters. The gartle being the string that go around. Um, ritual, you know, going to mikvahs. So Hasidim go to mikvah every single day. Uh, so um, the, the um, a couple of other things you see the payas. So if you see people with long pairs, you know in the Nisnagdisha world does not have long pairs. If if they have lengthy pairs they would be a little bit longer. They would be tucked behind the ears. But you would never see these long curls. Something that the Chabad also doesn't do. Every other Hasidic movement would have the long sit um, sit If you ever see people wearing, even see people with tzitzit on the outside of their clothes. It's another Hasidic thing that they used to do. Um, languages. Yiddish. Yiddish is. Huh non-hasidic uh, rabbis in, or not just rabbis but to sit on the outside no, no, not untucked on the outside over their oh, clothes, their whole, the whole garment so, over their clothes, yeah, no, the whole garment over their clothes, you'll see huh? so um, okay, so we'll, we'll get to that because that is something that is uh, um, language that uh, Hasidic communities have always spoken Yiddish, has never become popularized in Hebrew or anything in uh, Chabad has been again. Chabad is quite a unique exception within that world because Chabad, in specifically over the the, the late Lubavitcher Rebbe, is that it was a large emphasis on outreach, something that no other Hasidic movement perhaps, with the exception of Breslov, to a lesser degree, there's never really been an outreach movement. But uh, Chabad has, and that has largely contributed to that. The the Misnagdic world, by and large, accepted the concept of modern day dress, and this is quite something that. You know, if you want to talk about how the may become a little bit more Hasidic, is that um, the, if you went to the Mir yeshiva in, uh, the, in the 1800s, or, or Volosian or something, so uh, what would a yeshiva bocha wear? He'd wear the same as a businessman in uh, Volosian, you know, or in Germany. These guys would wear suits and ties and hats and the like. And the reason they wore all these things is because that's what people wore. And so if you go look at the Mir Yeshiva, so the Mir Yeshiva was the Yeshiva that escaped Germany through Shanghai during the Second World War and set up shop in Shanghai for, until the end of the war. And you go see pictures of the guys in the war. They're in blue suits and beige suits and whatnot. The concept of black and white was is a very recent invention within the Misnagdisha world. And so is the idea of hats. Because the reason that people wore hats in in the Yeshivisha world is because that's what everybody wore. You know, if you go... someone I, I read an article at... Um, not so long ago, where I was talking about the fact that the um like when did people stop wearing hats? Now, my guess is when when you were younger, everyone wore hats so or wore, wore hats you know that 's what everybody did so there was a picture of a civil rights no it wasn 't civil rights it was a a, a a a march on in in New York for equal pay that existed in the 1920s and then there was another one with the uh something on Wall street you know the blockade right. wall street was it. Correct. No, no, not the crash. When everyone was protesting on Wall Street a couple of years ago. And people sleeping on the streets. Huh? Occupy. Occupy Wall Street. So they show the two pictures. And the one in the 1920s, everybody's wearing a hat. And then the other one, no one wears hats anymore. So why did we, why did yeshiva boys wear hats? Because that's what everyone wore. It was a sign of respect and dignity. So when we came to America and we came into the modern world, all of a sudden, you know, oh, we don't wear hats, why don't we wear hats? Because no one wears hats. So why do, they, why do they, you know, people still wear hats? So, it's taken on a certain level of that Hasidic idea that to dress differently, look differently, the black and white, the hat, and, and, and even even the payers and like. It's taken on, the misnuggish world have taken on that Hasidic aspect of trying to look different. The idea of Jews looking different is a modern phenomenon, it is not an ancient phenomenon. That we need to be different, no question, but that we dress differently, so long as there's nothing. That lacks modesty within the dress There's no reason to So as far as the hats go So within Europe The, the hat that they wore Was either called a strimal Or a spodok So the strimal is uh, pretty much Much wider And the spodok was much more higher. So if you see Like if you've ever seen a picture Of uh, Rav Cook, Rav Cook was the first chief Rabbi of Palestine And he, he wore spodok So it was much higher But the strimal was much uh, Narrower And it's not that tall. N- No it's, it's made of ferret
1: Ferret the
0: Yeah, yeah the So that's the ferret What's interesting is that That is something that The strimer is usually Only given at uh, at at marriage Up until then You wear these When you go into Like my show And Gula And Bnei Brak, You see these kids On Shabbos wearing, And it's only worn on Shabbos You know The strimer is only worn on Shabbos Or Yontif Or Khulmoyed But you'll see these little kids Wearing these like Funny little caps But it's not like A baseball cap It's like a little very Yeah Huh? Well, no, no. That, 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 you feel like you're back in uh, Europe, you know, 200 years ago. So there were a lot of uh, controversies. Within, by and large, the divisions between Hasidim and Misnagdim has all but uh, dissipated. They still do exist. They respect one another. There's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of work that's done together. There's no question there's still divisions and certain stringencies within the Hasidic community that don't exist within the, in the non-Hasidic community. But there's a large crossover. The early Hasidim were far more lax. In their mitzvah observance than the modern day Hasidim are, and they were far less vigilant in Talmud Torah and learning. So, Tommy Chachamim was Jews did not come out of the early Hasidic movement. There were some, but by and large, it was not considered a value. The concept of a Hasidic yeshiva is a recent phenomenon as well. The early Hasidim, it was hold on, it was supposed to attract the people who were illiterate. But now, the value of uh, that creating scholars. In the Hasidic movement exists exactly the same as it does in the non-Hasidic movement. Okay, so our last division that we'll talk for this evening is uh, Reform and the advent of the Reform that comes in the you know, in the in the 19th century. Predominantly, it does exist in the late late 1700s, but predominantly takes its uh, its great leap in the early in the early ni- 19th century through a guy named Rabbi Abraham Geiger. Now, the early Reform movement, uh, as it exists, uh, is was always led by Orthodox rabbis. And uh, it wasn't until much later that the reform became uh, established in itself that it was able to produce its own rabbis. But within the reform and the conservative movement, all the original rabbis were orthodoxly trained. Now, uh, this I've taken from the Reform Judaism's website, asking, what is Reform Judaism? So this is in their own words, so I should not be considered a Throughout history, Jews have remained firmly rooted in Jewish tradition, even as we learn from much of our encounters with other cultures. Nevertheless, since its earliest days, Reform Judaism has asserted that a Judaism frozen in time cannot coexist effectively with those who live in modern times. Okay? I think everybody agrees there. Even the most Haredi of Haredim agree. That Judaism frozen in time can't exist in the modern world. The great contribution of reformed Judaism that enabled the Jewish people to introduce innovation while preserving tradition, to embrace diversity while asserting commonality, to affirm beliefs without rejecting those who doubt, and to bring faith to sacred texts without sacrificing critical scholarship. Okay? So that we would all debate, you know, we would say, with legitimacy. Reformed Judaism affirms the central tenets of Judaism, God, Torah, and Israel. Even reform judaism didn 't agree with that all the time, so when I say God Torah in Israel, it is not, the, it is not um, invalidating for a Reform rabbi to not believe in God or to not, or to question the existence of God. There have been m- multiple um, rabbinim in the in reform movement over the last number of years that have questioned they have, become, have opened and openly admitted their agnosticism. Um, to have really questioned the authenticity and legitimacy of the Torah. So, for example, one of the most prominent Reform rabbis in America talked about the fact that he got off in the pulpit about five, six years ago and said, we all know that the exodus from Egypt didn't happen. There's no, there's no proof in the historical records, and let's just you know, get on with it. So that's right. And Israel. Now, the early state of Israel was not recognized by the Reform Movement. And the Reform Movement did not recognize the state in Israel until much later in the 50s, if I'm not mistaken. Not only that, is that the early Reform Sidorim removed all references to returning to Zion and Zion in general. That the, pr- the concept of Berlin is our new Jerusalem was a term that was used throughout Reform Judaism in Germany. Ju- the, the Reform Judaism, and, and to its to maintain consistency with its own philosophy, Reformed Judaism allows itself the leeway of consistently re reestablishing its position. So, whereas orthodoxy say "We have a position, and this is our position, whereas the reform can say, "Well, that might have been a position last week, but this week we have a completely new position so last year we might have said that the State of Israel was not a good thing. Now we change our mind and we say that ref- that the state of Israel is a fantastic thing and there 's no question that the reform community, at least financially have probably contributed far more to the to the to the modern state of Israel than uh, orthodox and conservative have uh, there 's no question about that, but it didn 't always happen like that and um yeah, so on. so it says uh, God, or, even as it acknowledges the diversity of Reformed Jewish beliefs and practices, we believe that all human beings are created, created in the image of God and that we are God's partners in improving the world. Tikkun olam. That is the Reform buzzword that has been adopted by many. Tikkun olam. Nowhere in Jewish literature does the concept of Tikkun olam as a standalone concept exist. It's the, it comes out of Leinu, uh, and if you say, litakain olam, yeah, so we should fix the word. So we Jews, uh, i imagine we're not alone. It's like to take verses out of context and, and 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 highlight them. So, for example, if I said to you, "Man does not live by bread alone," so what's the end of that verse? Frequently, there must be a beverage. <laughs> okay. But what's the rest of that verse? So people say there's a rest to the verse. You know, that's that's how it ends. No, it says no. By the word of God does man live. So that part doesn't. So, the, what is the Masada, and I, I, don't, I don't pay out Masada when it says, but the Masada logo. So what does it say on the Masada emblem? Tzela'i My rock and my, and my foundation. What's the end of the Pasuk? Hashem. Hashem is my rock and my foundation. So that part didn't make it in, because... It doesn't really work as well, you know. We want to say the school is my rock and my foundation. No, Hashem is the rock. And it comes out of a haftorah, you know. And the same thing over this: letakein olam is not to just fix the world. It's letakein olam, but malchut shakai is to fix the world in the with the kingdom of Hashem. So the concept tikkun olam. When I was in America, I went to a lecture recently. When I say last year, by a guy named Rabbi J. David Bleich. He's a big Rosh Hashiva in America, and he's written a ton of material on modernity and uh, the halachas of modernity, and this was the topic he spoke about. He's actually written a book, that one of the large chapters in the, you know, in the non-Jewish world, and the concept of tikkun olam as a standalone concept. So I'm going to build houses in Honduras to help people. That is not part of the Jewish mission. Now, it can be part of the Jewish mission if it's b'machut shakai, but just building the houses that I will go, I am Jewish, but I'm not doing it as a Jew, or as a sense of obligation from the Jew, that in and of itself is not part of the Jewish mission. So I'm not saying you're not doing a good thing, but you can't say that that is the goal of Judaism, is tikkun olam. It is not the goal of Judaism. Okay. Um, Reformed Jews accept the Torah as the foundation of Jewish living, containing God's ongoing revelation. So this becomes a big thing. An ongoing revelation means it's just because it said it then, doesn't mean it's still applicable now. So it also says that there were slaves, but we don't have slaves anymore. It says um, homosexuality is, uh, is no good, but nowadays there's an ongoing revelation. So we can completely override not only the oral tradition, but the written tradition. So when God says that you cannot you know, uh, do something, so you have to keep kosher, you can't eat pork, and we'll come and say, well, maybe you can and you should know that the Pittsburgh platform, which is on this website, was, uh, was considered as a high-water mark within the reform community. It's a real establishment in America. The Pittsburgh uh, platform, which was the first major conference, they served seafood at their first conference. So the idea of reform, you should know, has become a lot more traditional in years. Like, for example, the reform synagogues, both in Chatswood and Willara, have kosher kitchens. Which considering that the original Pittsburgh platform in America served seafood at its its dinner, it's come a long way since then. But this concept of ongoing revelation, that somehow God and I are partners in deciding what morality will be in a particular generation. And that is where reform and orthodoxy were just like, no. There is a moral system, the orthodox community says there is a moral system that is unchanging, adapted to each generation, absolutely. And that, that we agree that Judaism uh, frozen in time cannot exist within the modern era. But there's a big difference between saying that we need to adapt and use the principles of the oral tradition to pask to, and to decide law, and saying that we will do without the halachic system. So, just so you can understand the difference, let's say, between Orthodox, Conservative, and Reform, and I, I'm being very general here, so I'm sure if I had any of those members from those communities represented, they'd disagree with me. When you, if you ask a, a reform rabbi a halachic question, you will get no specific, you won't get an answer based on Talmud, and you chance are you won't get a halachic answer, because the concept of halachic discourse does not exist within the reform movement, that we can override that which is written in the Torah if it feels that that is what society wants. Okay? So if society determines that, if our community determines that we want women rabbis and we want women to read from the Torah and we want to do, then we can do it. Ah, but it says that you can't do it. It doesn't matter. If we want to do it, we can do it because that's part of the ongoing revelation. The conservative movement do believe in halacha and do believe in the oral tradition, but believe that I have as much authority as the Rambam. So if the Rambam says no, but I say yes, so he says no. I say yes, I'm the rabbi of the shul, not the Rambam, so this is what we're going to do. So what will happen is that if you go into conservative literature, you will see responses written by the rabbinim. And they are generally speaking far more uh, literate within rabbinic texts. And they will write, but they will write from a point of equality that I can make decisions and I can argue with them. I have to have a basis. I have to bring a Talmud. I have to bring this. I might, by, by orthodox standards, distort that version of the Talmud, but I, I have to break it up. I can't do what I want. And the Orthodox saying, hold on a second, there's a hierarchy. If the Rambam says something, I'm not the Rambam. Now, so it's like, I can, you know, you know, get somebody to fight with the Rambam. So, just say the Ramban or Rashi, they fight with the Rambam. And I can perhaps hold with Rashi's side. But I can't challenge the Rambam. Who am I to challenge him? And so, there's a whole halakhic system that goes, you know, down the line. So, so if you look to, like, Orthodox reform, so the biggest areas at the moment of issue are, like, things like patrilineal lineage. So, for all, all of our history, that Judaism went through the mother. It comes all of a sudden in the last, and this is not a, 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 an, an old perception. this is relatively recent, is that all of a sudden we we'll say, no, you know, you've got a Jewish father, then you are so Jewish. Where did you get that from? Is, uh, because it's kacha. You know, this is, this is what we're going to do. So reform would say that's what we're going to do. Conservative, I don't, know, I don't think conservative are there yet, but if they were to do it, they'd have to find a source. In the, in the Torah to say such thing with Orthodox to say it. No. And this is becoming the big challenge in the world today because the reform movement is not growing. It is definitely on the decline. The conservative movement, from what I understand, is all but uh, bankrupt yeah, in America. It is, it is losing enormous ground that people are going in the two directions. Orthodoxy is growing um, not only by natural... Um, natural growth and the large family sizes within the orthodox community but the orthodox community is growing, and the reform community is largely assimilating completely and uh, the the way that the reform movement is, is, is growing is largely through consistently opening up its doors to new people to become Jews so the the qualifications and the necessities to become Jewish in the reform movement the, the stands are far lower and are in the orthodox community and so there are far more conversions this becomes a big challenge, and um, th- there's this is why in within the Orthodox world there's a lot of work being done to try get people to to um, preserve their lineage, so that you know, so we know you're Jewish, and you know your kids are Jewish. But you know, one day when a person comes to you and says, "I'm Jewish," you're gonna have to say, "Well, are you really?" In the same way as an early Christian would come to you and say he's Christian, so you know, this was in the first seventy years after Jesus died, and the guy said he was Christian, you'd know he was Jewish. But you know, came a period of time where the Gentile Christians outnumbered the Jewish Christians. And they'd have to say, if a guy comes and tells you he's a Christian, you have to assume that he's a Gentile. And there will come a time, whether it's in our lifetimes or not, where if a person comes up and tells you a Jew, or he tells you he's reformed, you're going to have to assume that he's a Gentile. Again, not just so everyone's clear, I'm not saying reformed Jews are Gentiles. I'm saying that, halachically there are lots of Gentiles that call themselves Jews. And when that gets to the tipping point is we're gonna have another big division within the Jewish community. And um, yeah, that's that's down the line. So yeah, these are things that are ongoing. Huh? The Sephardi are they growing or smaller? Um I have no reason to think that by and large this the depends where. The Sephardi communities in the majority of the world outside of America have always maintained a lot of tradition that they are a few generations around the Ashkenazim. The Sephardim, like the, like the broader Arab world, never went through the Enlightenment and therefore have been far less exposed to modernity than the Ashkenazim have. And so assimilation and intermarriage has always been much lower in the Sephardi community than there has been in the Ashkenazi. Even to this day, you know, you'll know, you meet a Sephardi Jew you may be completely secular, but you'll put on tefillin every day, which is something very unusual within the Ashkenazi community. I remember when I was in the army or um, when you said, "If we're making a minion, um, can you just can you count secular Jews in the minion?" So you answered, "Ashkenazim, no; Sfaridim, yes." And the reason was is that if you a secular Ashkenazi Jew in Israel, he's never heard of Shema. Like he just doesn't know. He's the guy is completely clueless. And if a person doesn't, is not able to at least follow the service, he can't be included in the minion. It's not because he's not Jewish, it's because he doesn't, you have to participate in the service. But Svaridim, even the most secular Svarid, knows knows how to dive um, In America, that's not entirely true, because the, the original settlers in America were Svaridim. You know, you think, Christopher Columbus and co, they were all Svaridim. So, there are a lot of them. If I'm not mistaken, Jerry Seinfeld is of Syrian extraction. And there's and, uh, a very large Syrian secular community in New York. So I don't think in America it's, it's, it's as uh, old-fashioned, so to speak. So it's like, yeah, yeah, I think it still is, and uh, definitely in Israel it still is. Are Reform Jews uh, very strict on, on Brit Milah and things like that? Um, are Reform Jews strict on Brit Milah? I don't know. Um, my guess is probably... Um, I, I think the answer is yes. I, 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 don't, I don't think you can talk about it in such a you know, general way. Okay. I think that within you know reform movement in America, you have, you know, what's interesting is, so there are about 40,000 Jews in, in in New South Wales. So what percentage of those do you think are members of any shul? It 10. So well, it's... Huh? I, I don't I think it's around half. Okay. Which just shows that, you know, around half. Let's say it's not half. Let's say it's forty percent. Let's say it's thirty percent. Whatever it is, you have a very significant percentage of Jews in New South Wales who don't even affiliate reform. You know, it's not a matter that they don't reform affiliate or don't affiliate at all. So these Jews are the ones that like are, you know, you know, prime for civilization. But I can tell you in our own community the amount of intermarriage that we've had. Uh, it's possible, but it's hard to believe that fifty percent or forty percent of the Jewish community are in that. <laughs> I would say that of the people that attend here, that aren't members uh, on regular basis, is very few. Yeah, maybe it's one or two a in every few well Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so they're the few, info. they are, they exist, but I would I definitely wouldn't say that it's uh, significant. They are. Sure. Huh? I think, Tracy you should perhaps rather sort of use the word identify they identify Jewish. Absolutely, and but they, know, don't as they, don't don't they don't affiliate, as I'm saying. They don't They don't affiliate to a community. Yeah. They don't, so... But it's they identify. Oh, no, no, I'm not saying that they don't identify as Jewish. I'm just saying, is it, the question is, like, you identify as Jewish... Like, I've had two questions in the in the last two weeks of boys' families who want to have bar mitzvahs, but they do not do anything Jewish. One is the um, uh, non-Jewish father, Jewish mother, and the other is two Jewish parents, but they both live far outside the Jewish community and do nothing. They don't do Friday nights. Um, they might come Pesach. They may go to the family and have a bit of a Seder, but um, they d- and, and they do absolutely nothing. And now comes Bometzvah. And so the big question is, why would this child want to have a Bometzvah? He knows that he's Jewish, but what does that mean? Like, what does this mean day to day? What does it mean being Jewish? And the answer it is... Huh? Needs, a fountain? Needs a fountain pen. They don't do that anymore, Morris. So <laughs> I think they the days of fountain pens are gone. You can get a stylus now, maybe. So, yeah, I remember. I remember getting uh, big pens. Not big, uh, parker pens. A parker pen from my me. All right, all right, everybody. Oh, I've gone too late. Yes, yes. I have a very good Jewish customer who's very ill at the moment, and he's got one of the diseases that only Ashkenazi Jews had. When did that Great Division
1: occur that, it, only
0: that crowd of people well the problem came with Eastern European Jewry was so incestuous and that's why the diseases stuck around the Ashkenazi and it didn't affect the Sephardim and the like is that when you keep marrying your family you keep passing down recessive gene through you know the generations and that's why we are so infected that's why the Ashkenazi gene pool is why so we small didn't do that. well they didn't have the same level of in, in marriage understand that Jury and Ashkenaz were so isolated from one another and so uh, persecuted that marriage was literally a business transaction. That there was very little... I mean, there's there's Tosfot. Tosfot was uh, one of the uh, early commentators on the Talmud. So the Gemara comes and says explicitly that uh, you're not allowed to marry a katana. You're not allowed to... Man's not allowed to marry a girl under bat mitzvah. So Tosfot comes... And that's that's a Torah law. So Tosfot comes and says, you know, we do that why because if i 've got money to marry off my daughter now uh, and she 's ten i, I don 't know if i 've got two years because within the next two years, a pogrom might come through town, I might get you know i, d- I just don 't have the luxury of waiting until uh, you know, until she comes of age if you 've got the money now, you marry her off now, and that 's what happened and that 's what Tosford talks about now this is it's, it's, you look at it today horrified, but you don't know what it's like having a crusaders running through your town that you don't know if you're going to survive till next week, let alone your family. So if you're, you've got an opportunity, you know, it's a mitzvah yadcha, you've got an opportunity to do a mitzvah, you do it now. So if that means marrying your daughter off at age nine, so you marry your daughter off at age nine because at least you'll get married. Otherwise, she may never get married. So these are the harsh climates that the Jews live and So, yeah, this is like, uh, it is It is very harsh and the in-marriage um, creates, uh, created a lot of these uh, these diseases, but it also created the. the we spoke about it a few weeks ago about this uh, unique Ashkenazi brain developed through the same uh, through this this largely of the same things that created the diseases created the brain, even though they might not be uh, linked, they definitely are correlated. Uh, you can marry your uh, from a Torah point of view, yeah. You yeah, absolutely. The only, you're not allowed to marry siblings. You're not allowed to marry in-laws. Uh, but by in-laws, meaning your sister-in-law. So you can't marry your wife's sister. Um Definitely not while she's alive. So if a person's wife passes away, you could marry the sister. But um, you couldn't divorce your wife and marry her sister. Um, you can't marry mother-in-laws. Um I know. <laughs> 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 I was like, Hypothetically speaking, you know? Like... <laughs> maybe like, I, I, I'm yet to beat a man." you said, "Oh, Dag never, you know my mother-in-law <laughs> as much as we all love our mother-in-law, it's a, Anyway.: If your brother dies, can marry a sister-in-law, yes, not only can you, but that is actually according to uh, into certain circumstances, that's a mitzvah. So if your brother dies without children, so the obligation on you is to marry his his widow. And the children that are born from that will take on your brother's legacy. So that's. uh, We don't do that nowadays. But uh, that is the Torah law. All right, everybody.